0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode forty-two of the Soft Skills Engineering Podcast. I am your host and your <laughs> caught you dramatic pause enthusiast, oh, Jameson Dance. <laughs> oh,
1: oh, that was so beautiful. Thanks. <laughs> I I am your other host and favorite number, Dave Smith. Oh,
0: you're right. Forty-two. That's that's a thing. That's right. I don't know. That's do you, do you know the thing? I, I do know the thing. I I have read the book. I have not seen the movie. I'm like oh. I'm like, yeah, that's a number. <laughs> but it doesn't it doesn't speak to me in a deep personal nerd way like it does to you, Dave. I don't
1: yeah, know. It does. I think it's because I read this book, which by the way, we're talking about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Probably my most favorite sci-fi novel. Hmm. And I think it's because I read it when I was an impressionable teenager. <laughs> and so it left a mark.
0: Sure. Well, it made you who you are today, which means it can't be, it can't be bad.
1: Oh, Douglas Adams is great.
0: Um, yeah, 42. Yeah, that's, we've, we've made it. This is probably more momentous than the hundred episode. Oh yeah. Number. Oh yeah. This is a podcast where we answer your non-technical questions about technical fields like software development, and we have some of those questions today. Do you want to read the first question, Dave?
1: Yeah, sure. This is from listener Brian. Brian writes, I graduated from a coding boot camp and have been developing for about two years. I'm seven months into my third job. Each job has been better than the last with more responsibility and newer technology, and now I have a chance to go to an even better job. I feel bad leaving another company after such a short amount of time, but a lot of the things I've been promised haven't come to fruition. I enjoy some of the challenges from this company, but I worry I may become stale since I'm the only front-end developer. Should I stay or should I go? I don't want to gain a reputation as a job hopper. Should I stay or should I go now? I didn't
0: notice this when reading it before, but it's there.
1: Well, if you go, there will be trouble. But if you stay, there will be double.
0: <laughs> oh, that's true. That was basically our, our <laughs> conclusion too. So how did they know the clash? <laughs> I think your concern about being uh, known as a job hopper is uh, valid. The fact that someone is kind of recruiting you. If, if you were just like, I'm going to quit and go try and find another job. I think that might be more worrisome in the short term, but at least in the short term, the consequences don't seem that severe as far as getting a reputation. I mean, you, mm-hmm. you already have a job lined up, so it's not like you're not going to be able to find a job.
1: I was once advising someone in a very similar situation to you, and I think he was on his third job as well out of college in, a co- in like less than two years. And he's like, hey, I've got this new opportunity to go somewhere. And I said to him, okay but you better stay there for a good long time because at this point you're going to start to get a reputation. And he goes, like, okay. Well, he did. And then within like 12 months he was gone from that job too.
0: <laughs> so, But how did it turn out for him?
1: He's working at a well-known um, Bay Area company and doing great stuff. And So <laughs> like it seems like it worked great. Everything that was true 10 years ago when I advised people about avoiding being a job hopper just doesn't seem to be true anymore.
0: I think that comes from, I, I would call it, yeah, I, I think there's an older idea of the employer employee relationship where it's, it's a longer term commitment where you say company, I will work for you. And the company's like, I will take care of you. And you're committed to each other and mm-hmm. you get your gold watch.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and I don't
0: think that exists in software at all. I think the tenures are short. Yeah. Um, this is making me feel like an old fogey though. Cause I, to Dave, I'm a job hopper. To to this person, I am like an ancient, wizened <laughs> wizard at each of my jobs. <laughs> Having um, stayed
1: for like 20 months. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: Multiple years at a single job. Um, but maybe this is just the brave new world that we live in. I, where I, I really wonder. Uh, well, I feel like it's bad, but everyone, literally everyone I know who has done this has benefited (laughs) from Mm -hmm. salary increases and uh just like increase i don't know they just end up somewhere they want to go it's kind of like do you know simulated annealing that machine learning thing no um too bad because i won't be able to explain it (laughs) coherently (laughs) on a podcast basically you're trying to optimize something and the idea is every once in a while you just kind of like fling it in a random direction to see if you can end up at a better spot through through some kind of hill climbing or optimization. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like if you jump around a lot and then optimize from there, you might end up at a place you wouldn't have arrived if you just stayed somewhere for a long time. Okay. So, so maybe, maybe the ending to this story is, like with the person you mentioned earlier, they job hop a lot until they end up at the promised land, and that's a good place <laughs> for them.
1: So maybe this caller, I mean, this question asker is actually part of an elaborate machine learning training algorithm.
0: Yes. (laughs) That was basically what I was trying to say. I I guess I'm trying to reconcile the reality I see with the feeling I have, which is like, I would not want to hire this person, but someone is going to hire this person. (laughs) They've
1: already made the offer.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, because I want to work with people that are gonna build stuff, and you can't you just can't build stuff after seven months.
1: The one thing that I noticed in the question here that I or in the details that I didn't read out loud is that this is a front-end web position, and the front-end web world, for those who are not aware, uh I guess you could say it's a little tumultuous in <laughs> In the technology, like I'm not talking about the jobs, I'm talking about the technology turnover. You know, the tools you use to build a front end web app today, um, like if you're using the modern, currently de facto modern standard tool set, is completely different from the tool set maybe even two years ago, right? So maybe, sure. maybe you can afford to turn over at your job every six months if you're a front end web developer because all your technology is turning over anyway.
0: yeah that's true it's i think you also mentioned that maybe this is just a thing that will become more commonplace in bootcamp grads where they just have a different a different path there the idea of bootcamps is still pretty new in the industry and we're still figuring out how to work with people that come out of bootcamps effectively Mm -hmm. and maybe this is just a more common path for them to take where they jump around a little bit more than than people that uh, got into the industry earlier or through other paths,
1: at least at the beginning of their career. And I kind of have this prediction where in maybe five years or 10 years, we'll look back at resumes of people who came out of a boot camp and say, oh, yeah, you jumped you jumped around between jobs, you know, four times in the first two or three years. But I see that you went to a boot camp and that's what everyone does out of a boot boot camp, you know, and it's like no Mm -hmm. big deal. Whereas, if you maybe came out of a more traditional, like computer science track, maybe jumping around every six months would be looked down on differently. I, I don't know. That's
0: just kind of a prediction that I have. And we will revisit that on episode <laughs> In- <laughs> 327 of the Soft Skills Engineering podcast with more data. I also yeah. think I, I can see how this is a rational action given the market. Um, Mm -hmm. People are so scared to hire junior developers. No one wants to be the first company to hire someone because they perceive the risk to be so great. But the second person, the the second job, everyone wants to be the second job. Mm -hmm. So you you can get an enormous salary bump um, going from your first job to your second job, given Mm -hmm. the conditions of the market right now. And I don't think that's uh, necessarily right or healthy, but. It's there. It is. So yeah, it is anyway. There, there are strong incentives to do this right now, I think. Um, also,
1: I, I think that along those same lines, that uh, people coming out of a boot camp are, like I think I've said this before, they're not going to Google
0: necessarily. Um, and Although they, all the blog posts about people coming out of the yeah. boot camp are written by the ones that go to Google. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but um, they are sometimes, the jobs that I've seen they are going to are like, sometimes a little bit short term jobs anyway, like, for example, an agency position where you're building like Greenfield product in a rapid, like rapid iteration fashion for lots of different customers over the course of a few months. And maybe in six months, you've built two complete websites for, you know, different customers. And so maybe it's completely natural that you would move on to a new job. uh, Because it's not like you're walking out on a team that you've helped establish this big platform. No, you've been like cranking out um, these fresh products that are not like the most sophisticated, gigantic systems that power
0: Google, you the, know, the difficulty in that is all around deadlines and timing and, and yeah. speed, not necessarily yeah. depth of, of feature set is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's not to belittle no, the no. accomplishments of those people at all. No, it's, it's just, that's a very hard problem to solve. Well, how do you stay sane while building stuff rapidly for yeah, lots super of different fast. clients? Yeah.
1: So anyway, I guess the TLDR of what I'm saying is maybe it's just normal for the this particular person. Maybe it's perfectly normal to come out of you know, a job after six months and maybe the company they're at turns over people like that anyway. And that's probably a good question to start asking yourself if you're fresh out of a boot camp is as you meet other people, ask them, how long have you been at this job? You know, maybe you're interviewing. (laughs) How long have you been here? Uh, Who was the last person to quit and how long were they here? You know, get a feel for that.
0: It's also possible that, uh, the reason you hop jobs so much is that, um, the thing that you're looking for doesn't really exist in a, in a job where you work as an employee and you might be angling for a a more entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. future, I guess. Um, if you're really interested in building your own ideas or having more control or say over technical decisions or I don't know that good point. That might be another possible outcome. Yeah, totally true. As far as should you stay or should you go? (laughs) uh, It sounds like in the short term you should go and you've kind of already decided that from, from reading. I mean, that seems like an okay thing. Yeah. I think at that point on your fourth job in two years, that... You you would have a reputation as a job hopper, yeah. Uh, so I agree with Dave that you either need to stick around for a long time or like figure out what's going on and and try and fix that. But yeah. now that I just said that, I feel stupid.
1: <laughs> uh, no, I think I think that's reasonable. Um, I would say take a look at this next job and see if it's a place where you can really get some depth. And learn. One of the things he mentioned in the question was that he doesn't have other people uh, that he can look up to as a mentor or can help guide him, and that's a big deal for someone who's new to the industry to be working Mm -hmm. on a team where you're the only one working on, say, web front end. You know, you just don't have someone to guide you along. And if you can find a position where you do, that'd be great.
0: That's a great point. I was uh, lucky enough to have jobs early on in my career where there were people that were smarter than I was who I could learn from. And so maybe all the stuff I'm saying is just coming from a, a place of privilege that this person doesn't have. Maybe they worked at, at not so great jobs that didn't teach them things that much. And so I'm just like, why don't you do what I did and just get a good job at first? <laughs> 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 I would caution you to be aware of grass is greener syndrome. Every, we've talked about this before, but every company, every job is just horribly broken in its own unique little way. And there's (laughs) not going to be a perfect job out there. And guaranteed, if you go to this next position, there's going to be something there that you don't like that you wish was different. And it's always like that. (laughs) Yep. So learning to learning how to work within a system to improve it is an important skill that I think, uh, I would suggest you try and develop that in, as a next thing to work on is, okay, I don't like this thing. What am I going to do to change it besides quitting and getting a different job? Sounds great. They've applied the soft skills engineering advice too <laughs> much. That's what I just said. <laughs> There's oh, too, no,
1: It's too much of a good thing. <laughs> Stop quitting your job so much. <laughs>
0: uh, I mean, it sounds like it's worked out. And it sounds like it, it, it might work out again uh, this time. Yep.
1: And I don't think there's some magic number where if you hit number five, then suddenly you have this black mark on your resume
0: forever. I mean, if people are still offering to hire you, then you're doing something, right? So, yep. I think it's much more important that you have a easy to understand
1: story for why you left each job. Mm. And if you got fired from each job, that's a very different story than when than you saying I wasn't challenged and I was looking for something better.
0: you know, sure, totally different story
1: sure well, question answered
0: question answered um I wanna take one brief second to talk about our sponsor Dev Mountain. We love them in a commercial transactional way <laughs> um <laughs> they they, uh, do dev boot camps in Utah. They do iOS, they do web development. They do UX and UI. Um, they have full-time courses and part-time courses. And in the full-time courses, they offer free housing actually, which is pretty cool. Yeah. If you're interested, you can go to softskillsaudio skills.audio slash dev mountain, and it'll take you over to their website and you can find out more about that. So thank you, dev mountain. Thank you. All right. You want to read our next question? I do. This one, this is one of the first questions we ever got on the show, and it's just sat in our backlog, so we're getting to it. Yep. What non-technical practices or cultural attributes improve software reliability or delivery? That's a great question.
1: (laughs) I was just trying to think of the most dogmatic answer I could think of. (laughs) Is it
0: 42?
1: (laughs) No, it's pretty much split between agile methodologies and test-driven development
0: <laughs> this is right on the edge of like technical things that we don't talk about but the question is explicitly about non-technical things that yeah, affect yeah. these very technical things so Good it's, point. this is an so, interesting question
1: so tdd and agile those are like right
0: out right they're not on the table for discussion sure i mean yeah because they're, they're bad that's what you're saying right <laughs> no I mean, they're technical <laughs> yeah Yeah.
1: Instead, we should rely on solid anecdotal evidence from our own (laughs)
0: lives. (laughs) I think I have more negative experience with this than positive experience. I think I could tell you things that make it harder (laughs) to have reliability. Let's do that. (laughs) I would say either no QA process or developers who feel a, a disdain for the idea of QA. Facebook Is super cool, right? They're one of the cool tech companies and they famously don't have a QA department Mm -hmm. and they do a lot of stuff to make sure their software works. But if you just read blog posts, you're like, Facebook doesn't have QA, QA sucks. We're too smart for QA. And then you just like go write a bunch of code and it breaks all the time. Um, (laughs) yeah, I have, I have lived that reality (laughs) before you need some kind of QA and QA is a very different skill from testing like writing unit tests or integration tests or whatever. And either your developers need to have that skill or you need someone else that has that skill. But that's, I don't know, QA gets a bad rap sometime, but I, I think it's it's really important.
1: I think you're right. And to add to that, I think that you really need to bake QA into every part of the process, not just you know some checklist at the end of the whole development process where you're like, okay, and here we do all the QA right like i think that the the highest quality highest reliability teams that i've seen they have some kind of qa baked into the entire pipeline uh if you will of their development process you know sure. from from the first line of code that's written all the way to the final verification by the person who came up with the feature idea
0: sure I've also seen teams that, that don't really use their product that much. They don't really have a great understand, a great feel for what the whole product does or is, and they build their features and kind of test them out as they build them. But there's just a lot of, there can be a lot of complexity in how the rest of the product works that isn't the feature you're working on. And that can make it harder to build reliable software then if you're deeply familiar with how things work and you you kind of click around in it a lot if it's a product that you can click around in or you just use it in some way beyond just clicking on the most recent thing that you wrote does that make sense
1: i think so have you seen it done that way before like and what the outcomes are
0: uh of of using the
1: software more oh, no, intimately? Of, of not of it just being like well only i've are, you I've, know,
0: I've done it <laughs> Yeah, the outcomes are I, I broke stuff that I didn't know existed all the time.
1: <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to become an expert in your own software.
0: Especially if it's for a domain that you don't care about. That's why I personally find it important to care about the the product I'm building. Either I need to like make myself care about it or it needs to be another thing mm-hmm. I, I find intrinsically interesting. Cause if I don't care about it, then this is that's what I do. I just like write the feature in a vacuum and don't consider it in the context of the whole product. Cause I don't, I, I, I don't develop enough empathy for what it's like as a customer yeah. to use it. Yeah. Maybe that's the underlying principle is you need empathy with the customers instead of just like seeing them as obstacles from you being as productive as you want to be. Like they mm-hmm. keep giving you crap to do those dang customers. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things that I love like to do at every company I've been
1: at is something that I'll call, Uh, Broadly, continuous improvement. And specifically, one way to do continuous improvement is through retrospectives. And I think the word retrospective actually came from the Agile movement. But the idea is that as a team, you get together periodically and review something that uh, has happened recently, and you talk about what went well. You talk about what could go better and pick something that needs to change. And, and one of the things that I did on my teams was I would have the team pick only one thing to change between now and the next next retrospective and focus on just that one thing because it's really easy to be like, well, here's here's a list of 10 things we all need to do better. And mm-hmm. when you have a list of 10 things, it's really hard to focus. And so you end up doing none of them, right? Yeah. But if you pick one thing, I found that you can usually make a material impact on that one thing. Because the whole team focuses on it, sure, and you have to repeat this like I think one of the one of the reasons that this sort of thing can work but also fail is that it's super repetitive it can feel super repetitive to just constantly be be doing retrospectives, you know mm mm-hmm. like, them often like do you do them? like every seven or eight minutes would be, <laughs> would be best like if you want to be really high quality. <laughs>
0: the most feedback right the yeah. fastest it's iteration all feedback <laughs> it's just all about iterating
1: i think that in an ideal world you do them on some schedule but i always tended to do them after something really bad happened you mm. know it's like sure. oh we need to do a retrospective <laughs> you know sure which that by the way sense. is a, it's basically a nicer way of saying post-mortem
0: yeah. At that point. Yeah. If it's if you're doing an air quotes retrospective about the database going down, <laughs> <laughs> another thing that works for me personally is not feeling rushed. I feel mm. like quality is hard to rush and the default state of building software commercially is, is pressure and pressure yeah. to rush. You always want to get stuff done faster. Someone's always waiting for your thing. There's always another five things to do after it. And depending on the product organization you work with that, that pressure can come through and affect the developer team. Yeah. And I don't think most developer teams are like, high performance we rise to the pressure type of things Mm -hmm. like people talk about that yeah like that's like a macho thing that people love to kind of pound their chests and say like i can sing good with the best of them i'll crank it out under pressure but i don't think that's true for most teams oh and and i think people
1: i think they can crank it out exactly but (laughs) will will what they've cranked out work in two weeks that's the question yeah
0: or or will they be able to make the switch in their brains from having developed the thing to having to QA it and figure out, okay, as if I use this as a customer, what are all the crazy ways they can break it? Like Mm -hmm. there's just all these little steps that get skipped when there's a lot of pressure. So there will always be pressure. You can't not have it, but if you can set up your engineering organization to, to shield people from it, to allow them to do good work. I don't think you need to like Just like put developers on this mountaintop and like airdrop them sweeties and, (laughs) I don't know, ball pits and stuff and be like, we'll just let them do good work. Like they need to be exposed to the realities of the business, but you also. I think way back in episode Single
1: Digit Land, we did an episode about deadlines right remember that and our conclusion yeah. our conclusion was basically that in the absence of a deadline engineers will generally just not deliver anything <laughs> so yeah I mean, it's like some amount of pressure is good too much pressure is bad
0: yeah but but quality is a thing that suffers under a lot of pressure yes. that's my my takeaway
1: one way that you can measure pressure cuz this is hard to measure but one way you can measure it is by asking your developers to create uh, stories or feature requests or whatever you track in your system that identify technical debt that has accrued as a result of these kinds of schedule pressure. And um, you can put numbers on them, like, you know, to weight them and say, well, this is like an extra large technical debt item. This is a small technical debt item. And then you can use that to say how much technical debt have we accrued. And that is an indicator of how much pressure you're putting on your developer team if you're putting too much or too little.
0: Sure. I mean, that sounds a way to like a way to come up with fake numbers to put Aww. on stuff. <laughs> is a, is a small like a two and a big? Is it like story points where then yeah. you add them up and?
1: Yeah, exactly, and it's it's not okay. like they're an, it's they're not an absolute measure of anything, but you sure. can say you know, hey, a month ago we had X number of story points worth of technical debt, and now we have twice that. You know what happened? Do we need to stop and pay some of this off?
0: Yeah. I think for me it hasn't been technical debt. I've been I've generally worked at places that that say explicitly, "Hey, we need to work on technical debt and we know that's an important thing to fix." It's it's just a feeling where it's like, "Yeah, I need to go fix this database thing and product is fine if I do that, but also, holy crap, we have so much stuff to get done and we better
1: get it all done." And ah. So I think you so it sounds like you're saying that it actually messes with your mindset more than necessarily producing technical debt. That's obvious.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it, the tech debt is a side effect of the overall feeling of going, of needing to go faster and cutting corners. But that's the, the feeling of needing to cut corners is the issue. I feel like not the tech debt or it has been for me. Okay. So one other thing that
1: I think is important is for engineers to have a sense of curiosity And what I mean by that is I think can be best explained by a
0: story from NASA. Shall I tell the story? Please. I love stories and NASA sounds cool. So I read about this story in in
1: a book called Apollo, I think. And it was basically the 10 year history of the Apollo program, Hmm. um, in the U S you know, from 1960 something to 1969, something like that. And, um, there was this one particular engineer named John Aaron. And one day John was doing a simulation on some equipment and he noticed some weird behavior and he decided to dig into it and investigate to figure out what had happened. Like it was some strange behavior. They'd never seen it before. wasn't documented anywhere. And, um, he basically did a root cause analysis, figured out what was going on. I think he stayed late to do it. Um, but he was just so curious. He couldn't let it go. He's like, what happened? Well, anyway, later on one of the Apollo missions, the spaceship is flying up through the atmosphere and it gets struck by lightning. And a few seconds later, the flight director is about ready to call an abort. And John, the same guy, John Aaron, looks down at his instruments and says, hey, it's that same situation that I dug into a few <laughs> months ago. <laughs> and he knew exactly how to fix it and what the root cause was. And he just said, hey, I re- recommend we switch the uh, this particular piece of equipment into this auxiliary mode. And boom, suddenly everything was back on track and they were able to complete the mission to the moon. But um, I thought that's just an awesome example for all of us to remember to stay curious about how everything works. Because you never know when that knowledge will come in handy. And it can, I think, improve the reliability and quality of your stuff, your systems.
0: Yeah, I've seen a lot of debugging stories that start with, I noticed this weird thing. And I just <laughs> kind of kept poking at it until... And then they, they discover it's like the tip of the iceberg and they discover the all the insane underlying stuff that's mm-hmm. caused by this little weird blip. Another thing i thought of when you were telling that is to me that that says that there should be a little bit of slack time. Yeah. If you have your team scheduled out to 100% capacity, there's no time to explore those little curiosities and and that's often how bugs are are found, right? It's little yeah. weird things.
1: Yeah. In other words, cut your team some slack and anecdotally your productivity might go up.
0: Yes. (laughs) We're all about the science here. You will get to the moon. That's right. (laughs) Cool. There you go. This is one. I think we would love to hear from listeners about what things have you seen work or not work at your company's non-technical cultural things that, that help you build better software. Yeah, totally.
1: There's like so there's like a thousand things here, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. And I want you to list them all, listeners. Just send them all in. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, have we answered this question, Dave?
1: Sort of. <laughs>
0: okay. Question sort of answered. Sort of. This is a great one. Yeah. I feel like answering this question is like the path of an engineering manager. Oh yeah. Your whole job is to answer this question or a, a large part of your job is to answer this question. How do you build a team and a culture and organization so that you build good stuff? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yep. Super challenging. Yep. All right. Where can people go to find out more about soft skills engineering and ask us a
0: question? They can go to softskills.audio, which is our website, our internet site, uh, they can also go to at soft ENG on Twitter. So you can send us a direct message on Twitter or through a form on our website. You can send us a lot more information. All right. I think we're done.
1: Excellent. Thanks All again. Right. We'll see you next week.
0: See ya.